Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Back in John 15, um, working our way down through there, um, verse 9, well, well up, up through verse 8, what's the big picture? The big picture is if you want to bear fruit, you need to abide in the vine. If you don't abide in the vine, you don't bear fruit. Those that bear fruit are not carnal Christians. They're unbelievers. And what happens to them? They're taken and thrown in the fire and burned. And if you are a vine bearing fruit, not a vine, but a branch that bears fruit, what happens? The husbandman prunes you so that you would bear more fruit. All right. And we can all attest to that as we face the trials of life. What happens? Well, we become more sanctified. We become more holy as we go through the the trials of life. God prunes us. Um, And then it says here in verse nine, it's the father loved me. I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, the verse 9 and 10 is the thing, and I think I've mentioned it before, that that has finally sunk into my thick skull after being a Christian for over for almost 40 years. And that is when you love God, keeping his commandments is something that you enjoy doing. It's not something you, you see as a burden. If you love someone, what do you want to do? Make them happy. You make them happy. I love my wife, so when we go to the grocery store, I always buy her flowers every Friday. You get a little bouquet of flowers. You know, and there was a day when I was cheap, and I said, hey, that's $4.99. I don't need to buy that. But I love her, and I love seeing her happy, and I love seeing the joy and because I love her, that's that's nothing. Four ninety nine is nothing. Four hundred ninety nine is nothing if you love someone. And what Christ is saying here is, if you love me, what are you going to do? You're going to do that which brings joy to my heart. What brings joy to my heart? Keeping my commandments. If you love God, you keep His commandments. You want to abide in Christ? How do you abide in Christ? You abide in Christ by having his word abide in you, right? So that you know what he wants. You know what what brings him joy. And then doing it. And that brings him joy. And that's how you abide in him. And he says, you do that just as I have kept my what? Father's commands. Remember what he said there. Why did Christ go to the cross? Because he loved us. He loved the Father. He loved the Father. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. You know, there's a side benefit to abiding in Christ, and what is that? Joy. You understand, and this, this is the thing we gotta we gotta we gotta we gotta get a, our heads around. Joy and peace and all those things that we seek for 
are byproducts of a relationship with Christ. They're byproducts of that. And the only way you get them is why what? Abiding in Christ. So if you try to come to God and you want God's joy, but you don't want to obey or you don't want to abide in his word, forget it. You're not going to get it. Now that right there would eliminate the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Because their whole, their whole mentality is you come to God for all the goodies regardless of whether his words abide in you or anything like that. It's what God owes you. No, God doesn't owe you anything. If you want God's peace, you want joy, you want fulfillment, love him. And those are all byproducts. Heaven is a byproduct of our salvation. It's a place where we can stand in God's presence and worship him and be with him. All of this is a byproduct, and all of it was for God's benefit, not ours. It's not for me. It's for him. If you abide in him and his words abide in you and you love him and keep his commandments, his joy will be in you and your joy will be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. How are you to love one another? You're to love one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? He laid down his life for us, right? Do you love other people that way? The origin of that is God. How can you love other people? Well, the love of God has to abide in you, right? Because this is a supernatural kind of love that we can't, that, that has no origin in us. It's, there's no human origin to this. And then this here in, in, in verse 14 is just, this absolutely boggles the mind. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. You are to love one another. Look at, and this, this is the thing here. He is calling us what now? You know what? You, you understand the, the implication of that? This is God. By the way, the word servant there, not servant, slave. Slave. He said, I'm not calling you a slave, I'm calling you a servant. Uh, what's a slave do? A slave does whatever the master tells him, right? And the master usually doesn't give his insights as to why he asks a slave to do it. It's just a, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this, do that. There's no... There's no rapport there. There's no give and take. And what's Christ saying here? He's saying, I'm not calling you a servant, a slave. I'm calling you a friend. I don't, 
I can't get my head around that. I'm God's friend. Think about that. God, God not only saves us, he not only redeems us, but the Bible says he adopts us, he makes us part of his family. I mean, it'd be just good to go to heaven and be a slave, right? Here, you sweep that gold street for the next thousand years or whatever. I mean, it'd be great to be there as a slave. We're not there as slaves, we're there as friends. And Christ is telling his disciples, why are you my friend? Well, you didn't choose me. What did I, what happened? I chose you. Now, the only way you can understand that is you've got to be a good five-point Calvinist. The disciples did not take uh, some kind of aptitude test and score high on the disciple category. They did not choose Christ. Christ chose them. And by the way, what does it say in, uh, I think, was it 1 John 4, 19? We love him because when you look at our relationship with God, God took the initiative. You got to understand that. God took the initiative. You didn't. Not only did you not take the initiative, you would never have taken the initiative. God took the initiative. God is the one who took the first step. God loved us first. How can we love God? Because he loved us. If he didn't love us, we couldn't love him. He's saying, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And because of that, I command you to love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. And by the way, in verse 18, if the world hates you, now that 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 if should be almost sense, right? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Um, you know, one of the things that we have to get over as Christians is quit being a bunch of wusses and just understand the world's going to hate us and just get over it. Just get over it. What do you expect? You know, um, I remember getting a big circular from uh, Pat Robertson for the Christian Anti-Defamation Defamation League. Wanting me to donate money so they could sue people who say bad things about Christians. Well, that's a good way to evangelize the lost. If you say something bad about me, I'm going to sue you for a million dollars. Oh, good night. Don't get me going on Pat. But it's like, it's like, what... Can you imagine Christ suing somebody in a Roman court because they said something nasty about him? Come on, guys, get over it. We have to get over this concept that somehow the world should like us. It's not supposed to like us. It never, it didn't like Christ. Did it like Christ? No. And if the world hated him, what makes us any different? That's what he's saying here. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. And now, this is something to understand. If the world loves you, what does that tell you? There's something out of kilter here. 
There's something out of kilter. First John 2:15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's the world? It's the values. It's the values of the world. It's not worldly to have a nice car. It is worldly to love the prestige and the things that the car goes with. Things are not having nice things or, or going to a ball game or, 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 or something like that. That's not worldly. What's worldly is when you love the things in the world, when you're after what the world values. If, if what you value and the world values are the same things, the world will love you. But you're not of the world. What does the world love? Fame, prestige, power, pleasure, money, riches. That's your pursuit. God's love isn't in you. Because what does John say? The world passes away in the lusts of it. It's all temporary. I think Solomon pretty much tells us that in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, well, all it's vanity. It's smoke. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, it's going to the great final bonfire. Christ is saying, look, if the world hates you, it hated me first. And if you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, because I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're not of the world. So what is that telling us as believers? We're not of this world. We're not to act like it. We're not to think like it. We're not to have the values of this place. And therefore, when people value money and power and prestige, that's not what we're to value. It's not wrong to have those. It's wrong to value those. Right? Therefore, again, Trinity Broadcasting Network should go off air because what are they catering to on those programs. Power, prestige, wealth, every Christian millionaire, all that crap. I told you about the time I was going over the San Bernardino Mountains. And you don't get a whole lot of radio stations up in the San Bernardino Mountains. We were driving from Vegas, which we never stopped, and that's a worthless piece of ground if i ever seen it. Um, but we went to Boulder Dam. We were driving down to San Bernardino. We went by Las Vegas. I saw it over in the distance. And that's about as close. I didn't want to get there because I was afraid that might be when God destroys it. You know, I would be there when the fire falls. So I didn't go there. So I went around it, and I'm going down to San Bernardino, and we're driving up through the mountain passes. And I, I got one radio station. It was a Christian station. And they were talking about the Christian of the year or something like that. And they're getting this massive reward out. They were talking about this guy, like, you know, he walked down water, you know. The, if this guy didn't exist, the kingdom of God would come grinding to a halt. And I'm thinking, who is this guy, you know? And finally, they announced it was Oral Roberts. And I about drove off the mountain when I heard that. And it's like, oh, man, you know, of all the people. What's the world value? That. That's not what the, that's not what we're to value. That shouldn't be what drives us. We're to hate the world. We're to hate the things in the world. We're to hate the values of the world. Why a Christian would watch Desperate Housewives is beyond me. It's beyond me. Why would you ever watch that? 
That's not what your values are. I hope they aren't. He says, remember that the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours. The servant's not greater than his Lord. He's saying, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Don't, don't. And this is the thing, the point here. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. It's supposed to. They're supposed to make fun of Christians on TV. What do you expect them to do? They hate you. Get over it. Fit into what it says here. What do you think we're a, a constant reminder to them that you need to be living a better life? Yeah. You're rebuked to them. doing that in front of them, it brings condemnation on them because they like to rationalize and say, well, this is what everybody's yep. doing, so there's nothing wrong with it. And in verse 21, they say, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Why does the world hate you? They don't know God. What do you expect? I think one of the things that Christians is, is our problem as Christians is we expect the world to act like Christians. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to hate us. They're supposed to sin. When you talk to somebody at work and they're living with one another, what do you expect? Does it, uh, that's ungodly. Well, what do you expect ungodly people to do? Ungodly things. Don't expect them to live like Christians. It's not wrong to, to be a testimony and witness, but look, folks, what do pigs do? They go play in the mud. What do dogs do? They bark. What do sinners do? They sin. And you're rebuked to them. And when they hate you, don't say, Oh, you know, they're being unfair. You know, of course they are. They're supposed to. They're supposed to hate you. And if they don't hate you, it's because they don't know that you're a real Christian. They're supposed to. If I had come and not spoken to them, they would not have no sin. But now they have no excuse for that sin. What did Christ do when Christ came? What did he expose to the Pharisees? Just how hypocritical and rotten to the core they were. And by the way, it's interesting, um, Dr. Carson brought out, they had these big debates in the rabbis about the whole thing about God keeping the law. Yeah. They actually said and they have rabbinical writings that taught that God confers with the rabbis and they argue about points of the law in heaven. That the chief rabbis and God argue over points of the law. Like the president and his cabinet, huh? the ones that never made it. Yeah. <laughs> And that God himself needs to come sometimes to the rabbis to get clarification on his own law. Now, that's a new one. That verse 22, is that also kind of referring to the old uh, form of the sacrifice for their sin that since Christ came, that that system is no longer in effect? No. Not verse 22. What it's saying there is... How do you know there's dirt in a room? How do you know there's sin? Let's turn the light on. And see, see, we don't understand. If if we if we were to personally meet Christ face to face, 
we would be an emotional, mental basket case. We would not be doing what the guys on. I'm picking on TBN. I'm sorry because they're so heretical. But on TBN, the guys meet Christ and they, they slap high fives with him and talk to him like he's, you know, friend. One guy says Jesus comes in and puts his arm around him while he's shaving in the morning, you know, before he goes to church. You know, and Kenneth Hagin had conversations with Jesus. One guy wrote a book on getting a tour of heaven by Jesus, and he got dunked in the river of life by Jesus himself. And just silly, stupid stuff like that. Listen, if you find yourself in the presence of God, you do what Isaiah said, damn me. And and you do what Daniel did. He fell on his face as a dead person. And he do what John did. He fell on his face and had to be picked up. You wouldn't be saying, oh, good one... You know, I had some things I want to talk to you about. You know, you wouldn't be pulling that stuff. Because he's sinless, he's perfect. And you would see every little itsy bitsy blemish in your own life. And that's what Christ did. Christ exposed them for what they were. And they were doing okay until he came along. And it's just like Paul said in Romans 6. Now I was doing fine until the law came and then the commandment. Came along, sin revived, and I died. I think it was 6, 7, Romans 7. Paul said, I would not have known covetous that the law said, thou shalt not covet. And then what happened? Started he started, I started coveting, you know. And that's Christ exposed their evil and their sin. And that's why the world hated him. Why did the Pharisees hate Christ? Because they sat down, they thought it through, and they, they saw him as a real enemy? No, they, he exposed their hypocrisy. And they hated him for that. And they wanted to kill him for that. He exposed them for what they were. And why are we any different? He who hates me hates my father. And just like Dr. Carson said, you see this, this symbiotic relationship between the father and the son. If you love the son, you love the father. You hate the son, you hate the father. If you obey the son, you're obeying the father. If you love the Son, you love the Father. There's no split between those two. You hate Christ, you hate the Father. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. If I had not come and exposed them, you know, healing the guy with the, uh, the paralysis, 38 years, to tear his bed. What did I do? They exposed the hypocrisy of, the, of their system. And they hated Christ for it. They wanted to kill him. And Christ says, if you hate me, you hate the Father. And because I come and I did these works, and I exposed their sin, that's why they hate me. They cannot stand me because I exposed them for what they were. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What cause did they have to hate him? He just exposed their sin. He exposed them for what they were. They hate him for that. And when we expose the world's sin by our lives, they're to hate us. What do you expect? Get, get over it. <laughs> you don't need therapy. You need to learn to live with it. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This segues into the next chapter, the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
The helper is coming. And what is the helper going to do? Yes, it will guide us. And that's what it says. He's the spirit of truth. There's a lot of lies. There's one truth, right? The spirit is the spirit of truth. He's going to guide us. He's going to, and we see the ministries. We'll see that next week in John 16, not next week, the week after John 16. He's the one who's going to guide us into all truth because the spirit that gives us the mind and heart of God. He's our connection. And he will testify of me and you will also bear witness of me because you've been with me from the beginning. You also will be empowered to be a testimony through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the strength. How is it that we can face the world? Holy Spirit gives us strength. How can we obey the Father? The Holy Spirit. How can we abide in Christ? The Holy Spirit. How can we keep his commandments? The Holy Spirit. It's not us. And we need to get our focus off of this, this man-centered, us-centered viewpoint of the gospel and Christianity and get it focused on God. It's, it's all about him. It's about what he has done. It's his power, not my power. It's his strength, not my strength. And I can only live, the Christian life is an impossible life to live unless... You have the Holy Spirit. You can't live it on your own. If you don't abide in the vine, you can't bear fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're done tonight. Well, yeah. We'll fly through 17. But, um. I think that was quite a message tonight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite a message. You know, as I was listening to him, I'm, I'm thinking, I can only imagine the preparation for that kind of message. That had to take, well, I, I just can't imagine. Well, D.A. Carson, remember, you, you know, I, I use the model that there are, there's there's really four levels of, of um, uh, when it comes to the Word of God, there's four levels of, of, of depth you can go to. There's, there's the devotionalist who reads a verse and has at it, you know, never knows what it says. Then you get to the student who spends more time studying the Word of God to understand it. Then there's the scholar level where you're starting to use Greek words and Greek helps and where you really understand. And then there's the theologian who writes the commentaries. That's him. All right. He wrote it. Yeah, the EBC. I think it's, look, go home. Do anybody have the EBC in here? Yeah, go home and check that out. The Expositor's Bible Commentary, Volume 7 or 8. He wrote the Matthew Commentary in it, I think. But just a brilliant, brilliant person. So, Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this night, for being here with us. Thank you for teaching us. And thank you for your grace. We owe you everything. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.